If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, Chapters 10 to 13 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last chapter, Anna's husband began to have doubts about her relationship with Vronsky. In tonight's story, we see how Anna becomes ever more guilt-stricken. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 10 From that time, a new life began for Alexei Alexandrovich and for his wife. Nothing special happened. Anna went out into society, as she always had done, was particularly often at Princess Betsy's, and met Vronsky everywhere. Alexei Alexandrovich saw this, but could do nothing. All his efforts to draw her into open discussion, she confronted with a barrier which he could not penetrate, made up of a sort of amused perplexity. Outwardly, everything was the same, but their inner relations were completely changed. Alexei Alexandrovich, a man of great power in the world of politics, felt himself helpless in this. Like an ox, with head bent, submissively he waited for the blow which he felt was lifted over him. Every time he began to think about it, he felt that he must try once more, that by kindness, tenderness, and persuasion, there was still hope of saving her, of bringing her back to herself and every day he made ready to talk to her 
but every time he began to talk to her, he felt that the spirit of evil and deceit which had taken possession of her had possession of him too, and he talked to her in a tone quite unlike that which he had meant to talk. Involuntarily, he talked to her in his habitual tone of jeering at anyone who should say what he was saying, and in that tone it was impossible to say what needed to be said to her. Chapter 11 That which for Vronsky had been almost a whole year the one absorbing desire of his life, replacing all his old desires, that which for Anna had been an impossible, terrible, and even for that reason more entrancing dream of bliss, that desire had been fulfilled. He stood before her, pale, his lower jaw quivering, and besought her to be calm, not knowing how or why. Anna, Anna, he said with a choking voice, Anna, for pity's sake. But the louder he spoke, the lower she dropped her once proud and gay, now shame-stricken head and she bowed down and sank from the sofa where she was sitting, down on the floor, at his feet. She would have fallen on the carpet if he had not held her. My God, forgive me, she said, sobbing, pressing his hands to her bosom. She felt so sinful, so guilty, that nothing was left for her but to humiliate herself and beg forgiveness, and as now there was no one in her life but him, to him she addressed her prayer for forgiveness. Looking at him, she had a physical sense of her humiliation, and she could say nothing more. He felt what a murderer must feel when he sees the body he has robbed of life. That body, robbed by him of life, was their love, the first stage of their love. There was something awful and revolting in the memory of what had been bought at this fearful price of shame. Shame at their spiritual nakedness crushed her and infected him. But in spite of all the murderer's horrors before the body of his victim, he must hack it to pieces, hide the body, must use what he has gained by his murder. And with fury, as it were with passion, the murderer falls on the body and drags it and hacks at it, so he covered her face and shoulders with kisses. She held his hand and did not stir. Yes, these kisses, that is what has been bought by this shame. Yes, and one hand, which will always be mine, the hand of my accomplice. She lifted up that hand and kissed it. 
He sank on his knees and tried to see her face, but she hid it and said nothing. At last, as though masking an effort over herself, she got up and pushed him away. Her face was still as beautiful, but it was only the more pitiful for that. All is over, she said. I have nothing but you. Remember that. I can never forget what is my whole life, for one instance of this happiness. Happiness, she said, with horror and loathing, and her horror unconsciously infected him. For pity's sake, not a word, not a word more. She rose quickly and moved away from him. Not a word more, she repeated, and with a look of chill despair, incomprehensible to him, she parted from him. She felt that at that moment she could not put into words the sense of shame, of rapture, and of horror at this stepping into a new life, and she did not want to speak of it, to vulgarize this feeling by inappropriate words. But later too, and the next day, and the third day, she still found no words in which she could express the complexity of her feelings. Indeed, she could not even find thoughts in which she could clearly think out all that was in her soul. She said to herself, No, just now I can't think of it. Later on, when I am calmer. But this calm for thought never came. Every time the thought rose of what she had done, and what would happen to her, and what she ought to do, a horror came over her, and she drove those thoughts away. Later, later, she said, when I am calmer. But in dreams, when she had no control over her thoughts, her position presented itself to her in all its hideous nakedness. One dream haunted her almost every night. She dreamed that both were her husbands at once, that both were lavishing careness on her. Alexei Alexandrovich was weeping, kissing her hand, and saying, How happy we are now. And Alexei Vronsky was there too, and he too was her husband, and she was marvelling that it had once seemed impossible to her, was explaining to them, laughing, that this was ever so much simpler, and that now both of them were happy and contented. But this dream weighed on her heavily, and she awoke from it quite unsettled. Chapter 12 In the early days after his return from Moscow, when Levin shuddered and grew red, remembering the disgrace of his rejection, he said to himself, 
This was just how I used to shudder and blush, thinking myself utterly lost when I was plucked in physics and did not get my remove, and how I had thought myself utterly ruined after I had mismanaged that affair of my sister's that was entrusted to me. And yet, now that years have passed, I recall it and wonder that it would distress me so much. It will be the same thing too with this trouble. Time will go by, and I shall not mind this either. But three months had passed, and he had not left off minding about it, and it was as painful for him to think of it as it had been those first days. He could not be at peace, because after dreaming so long of family life, and leaving himself so ripe for it, he was still not married, and was further than ever from marriage. He was painfully conscious himself, as were all about him, that at his years it is not well for man to be alone. He remembered how before starting for Moscow, he had once said to his cowman Nikolai, a simple-hearted peasant, whom he liked to talk to. Well, Nikolai, I mean to get married. And how Nikolai had promptly answered, as of a matter on which there could be no possible doubt. And high time too, Konstantin Dmitrovich. But marriage had now become further off than ever. The place was taken, and whenever he tried to imagine any of the girls he knew in that place, he felt that it was utterly impossible. Moreover, the recollection of the rejection and the part he had played in the affair tortured him with shame. However often he told himself that he was in no wise to blame in it, that recollection, like other humiliating reminiscences of a similar kind, made him twinge and blush. There had been in his past, as in every man's, actions recognized by him as bad for which his conscience ought to have tormented him. But the memory of these evil actions was far from causing him so much suffering as those trivial but humiliating reminiscences. And with these memories was now ranged his rejection and the pitiful position in which he must have appeared to others that evening. But time and work did their part. Bitter memories were more and more covered up by the incidents, paltry in his eyes, but really important of his country life. Every week he thought less often of Kitty. He was impatiently looking forward to news that she was married, or just going to be married, hoping that such news would like having a tooth out, completely cure him. Meanwhile, spring came on, 
beautiful and kindly, without the delays and treacheries of spring. One of those rare springs in which plants, beasts, and man rejoiced alike. This lovely spring roused Levin still more, and strengthened him in his resolution of renouncing all his past and building up his lonely life firmly and independently. Though many of the plans with which he had returned to the country had not been carried out, still his most important resolution, that of purity, had been kept by him. He was free from that shame which had usually harassed him after a fall, and he could look everyone straight in the face. In February, he had received a letter from Maya Nikolaevna telling him that his brother Nikolai's health was getting worse, but that he would not take advice, and in consequence of this letter, Levin went to Moscow to his brother's and succeeded in persuading him to see a doctor and to go to a watering place abroad. He succeeded so well in persuading his brother and in lending him money for the journey without irritating him that he was satisfied with himself in that matter. In addition to his farming, which called for special attention in spring, and in addition to reading, Levin had begun that winter a work of agriculture, the plan of which turned on taking into account the character of the labourer on the land as one of the unalterable data of the question, like the climax and the soil, and consequently deducing all the principles of scientific culture, not simply for the data of the soil, and climate, but from the data of the soil, climate, and a certain unalterable character of the labourer. Thus, in spite of his solitude, or in consequence of his solitude, his life was exceedingly full. Only where he suffered from an unsatisfied desire to communicate his stray ideas to someone, besides Agafa Mihalovna. With her, indeed, he not infrequently fell into discussions upon physics, the theory of agriculture, and especially philosophy. Philosophy was Agafa Mihalovna's favourite subject. Spring was slow in unfolding. For the last few weeks, it had been steadily fine, frosty weather. In the daytime, it thawed in the sun but at night there was even seven degrees of frost. There was such a frozen surface on the snow that they drove the wagons anywhere off the road. Easter came in the snow. Then all of a sudden, on Easter Monday, a warm wind sprang up. Storm clouds swooped down, and for three days and three nights, the warm, driving rain fell in streams. On Thursday, the wind dropped, and a thick grey fog brooded over the land, 
as though hiding the mysteries of the transformations that were being wrought in nature. Behind the fog, there was the flowing of water, the cracking and floating of ice, the swift rush of turbid, foaming torrents, and on the following Monday, in the evening, the fog parted, the storm cloud split up into little, curling crests of cloud, the sky cleared, and the real spring had come. In the morning, the sun rose brilliant and quickly, wore away the thin layer of ice that covered the water, and all the warm air was quivering with the steam that rose up from the quickened earth. The old grass looked greener, and the young grass thrust up its tiny blades, the buds of the gula rose and of the currant and of the sticky birch buds were swollen up with sap, and an exploring bee was humming about the golden blossoms that studded the willow. Larks trilled unseen above the velvety green fields, and the ice-covered stubble land. Peewits wailed over the lowlands and marshes flooded by the pools. Cranes and wild geese flew high across the sky, uttering their spring calls. The cattle, bald in patches where new hair had not grown yet, lowed in the pasture, and bow-legged lambs frisked round their bleating mothers. Nimble children ran about the drying paths, covered with the prints of their bare feet. There was a merry chatter of peasant women over their linen at the pond, and the ring of axes in the yard, where the peasants were repairing ploughs and harrows. The real spring had come. Chapter 13 Levin put on his big boots, and, for the first time, a cloth jacket instead of his fur cloak, and went out to look after his farm, stepping over streams of water that flashed in the sunshine and dazzled his eyes, and treading one minute on ice and the next into sticky mud. Spring is the time of plans and projects, and, as he came out into the farmyard, Levin, like a tree in spring that knows not what form will be taken by the young shoots and twigs imprisoned in its swelling buds, hardly knew what undertakings he was going to begin upon now in the farm work that was so dear to him. But he felt that he was full of the most splendid plans and projects. First of all, he went to the cattle. The cows had been let out into their paddock, and their smooth sides were already shining with their new, sleek spring coats. They basked in the sunshine and lowed to go to the meadow. Levin gazed admiringly at the cows he knew so intimately to the minutest detail of their condition and gave orders for them to be driven out into the meadow and the calves to be let into the paddock. 
the herdsmen ran gaily to get ready for the meadow. The cowherd girls, picking up their petticoats, ran splashing through the mud with bare legs, still white, not yet brown from the sun, waving brushwood in their hands, chasing the calves that frolicked in the mirth of spring. After admiring the young ones of that year, who were particularly fine, the early calves were the size of a peasant's cow, and Pava's daughter, a three-month-old, was as big as a yearling. Levin gave orders for a trough to be brought out and for them to be fed in the paddock. But it appeared that as the paddock had not been used during the winter, the hurdles made in the autumn for it were broken. He sent for the carpenter, who, according to his orders, ought to have been at work at the thrashing machine. But it appeared that the carpenter had been repairing the harrows, which ought to have been repaired before Lent. This was very annoying to Levin. It was annoying to come upon that everlasting slovenliness in the farm work against which he had been striving with all his might for so many years. The hurdles, as he ascertained, being not wanted in winter, had been carried to the cart horse's stable, and there broken, as they were of light construction, only meant for feeding calves. Moreover, it was apparent also that the harrows and all the agricultural equipment, which he directed to be looked over and repaired in the winter, for which very purpose he had hired three carpenters, had not been put into repair, and the harrows were being repaired when they ought to have been harrowing the field. Levin sent for his bailiff, but immediately went off himself to look for him. The bailiff, beaming all over, like everyone that day, in a sheepskin bordered with astrachan, came out of the barn, twisting a bit of straw in his hand. Why isn't the carpenter at the thrashing machine? Oh, I meant to tell you yesterday. The harrows want repairing. Here it's time they got to work in the fields. But what were they doing in the winter then? But what did you want the carpenters for? Where are the hurdles for the calves' paddocks? I ordered them to be got ready. What would you have with those peasants? said the bailiff with a wave of his hand. It's not those peasants, but this bailiff, said Levin, getting angry. Why, what do I keep you for? he cried. But bethinking himself that this would not help matters, he stopped short in the middle of a sentence and merrily sighed. Well, what do you say? Can sewing begin? he asked after a pause. Behind Turkin tomorrow or the next day, they might begin. And the clover? I've sent Vasily and Mashka. They're sewing. Only I don't know if they'll manage to get through. It's so slushy. How many a cress? About fifteen. 
why not sow all? cried Levin. That they were only sowing the clover on fifteen acres, not on all forty-five, was still more annoying to him. Clover, as he knew, both from books and from his own experience, never did well except when it was sown as early as possible, almost in the snow. And yet Levin could never get this done. There's no one to send. What would you have with such a set of peasants? Three haven't turned up, and there's Semyon. Well, you should have taken some men from your thatching. And so I have, as it is. Where are the peasants, then? Five are making compot, which meant compost. Four are shifting the oats for fear of a touch of mildew, Konstantin Demetrovich. Levin knew very well that a touch of mildew meant that his English seed oats were already ruined. Again, they had not done as he had ordered. Why? but I told you during Lent to put in pipes, he cried. Don't put yourself out. We shall get it all done in time. Levin waved his hand angrily, went into the granary to glance at the oats, and then to the stable. The oats were not yet spoiled, but the peasants were carrying the oats in spades when they might simply slide them down into the lower granary and arranging for this to be done, and taking two workmen from their sewing clover, Levin got over his vexation with the bailiff. Indeed, it was such a lovely day that one could not be angry. Ignat, he called to the coachman, who, with his sleeves tucked up, was washing the carriage wheels. Saddle me, which, sir? Well, let it be Colpick. Yes, sir. While they were saddling his horse, Levin again called up the bailiff, who was hanging about in sight to make it up with him, and began talking to him about the spring operations before them and his plan for the farm. The wagons were to begin carting manure earlier, so as to get all done before the early mowing, and the ploughing of the further land to go on without a break, so as to let it ripen, lying fellow, and the mowing to be all done by hired labour, not on half profits. The bailiff listened attentively, and obviously made an effort to approve of his employer's projects, but still he had that look Levin knew so well that always irritated him, a look of hopelessness and despondency. That look said, that's all very well, but as God wills. Nothing mortified Levin so much as that tone, but it was the tone common to all the bailiffs he knew. They had all taken up that attitude to his plans, and so now he was not angered by it but mortified, and felt all the more roused to struggle against this, as it seemed, elemental force 
continually raged against him, for which he could find no other expression than as God wills. If we can manage it, Konstantin Dmitrovich, said the bailiff. Why ever shouldn't we manage it? We positively must have another fifteen labourers, and they don't turn up. There were some here today asking seventy roubles for the summer. Levin was silent. Again, he was brought face to face with that opposing force. He knew that however much he tried, they could not hire more than forty, thirty-seven, perhaps, or thirty-eight labourers for a reasonable sum. Some forty had been taken on, and there were no more. But still, he could not help struggling against it. Send to Suri, to Cheferovka. If they don't come, we must look for them. Oh, I'll send, to be sure, said Fasily Fedorovich despondently. But there are the horses, too. They're not good for much. We'll get some more. I know, of course, Levin added, laughingly. You always want to do with as little and as poor quality as possible. But this year, I'm not going to let you have things your own way. I'll see to everything myself. Why, I don't think you take much rest as it is. It cheers us up to work under the master's eye. So they're sowing clover behind the birchdale. I'll go and have a look at them, he said, getting on to the little bay cob, Colpick, who was led up by the coachman. You can't get across the streams, Konstantin Dmitrovich, the coachman shouted. All right, I'll go by the forest and Levin rode through the slush of the farmyard to the gate and out into the open country, his good little horse, after his long inactivity, stepping out gallantly, snorting over the pools and asking, as it were, for guidance. If Levin had felt happy before in the cattle pens and farmyard, he felt happier yet in the open country. Swaying rhythmically with the ambling paces of his good little cob, drinking in the warm yet fresh scent of the snow and the air as he rode through his forest over the crumbling, wasted snow, still left in parts and covered with dissolving tracks, he rejoiced over every tree, with the moss reviving on its bark and the bud swelling on its shoots. When he came out of the forest, in the immense plain before him, his grass field stretched in an unbroken carpet of green, without one bare place or swamp, only spotted here and there in the hollows with patches of melting snow. He was not put out of temper even by the sight of the peasants' horses and colts trampling down his young grass. He told a peasant he met to drive them out, 
nor by the sarcastic and stupid reply of the peasant, Ipat, whom he met on the way, and asked, Well, Ipat, shall we soon be sowing? We must get the ploughing done first, Konstantin Dmitrovich, answered Ipat. The further he rode, the happier he became, and plans for the land rose to his mind, each better than the last, to plant all his fields with hedges along the southern borders, so that the snow should not lie under them, to drive them up into six fields of arbor and three of pasture and hay, to build a cattle yard at the further end of the estate, and to dig a pond, and to construct movable pens for the cattle as a means of manuring the land. And then eight hundred acres of wheat, three hundred of potatoes, and four hundred of clover, and not one acre exhausted. Absorbed in such dreams, carefully keeping his horse by the hedges so as not to trample his young crop, he rode up to the labourers who had been sent to sow clover. A cart with the seed in it was standing, not at the edge, but in the middle of the crop, and the winter corn had been torn up by the wheels and trampled by the horse. Both the labourers were sitting in the hedge, probably smoking a pipe together. The earth in the cart with which the seed was mixed was not crushed to powder, but crushed together or adhering in clods. Seeing the master, the labourer, Vasily, went towards the cart, with Mishka set to work sewing. This was not as it should be, but with the labourers, Levin seldom lost his temper. When Vasily came up, Levin told him to lead the horse to the hedge. It's all right, sir. It'll spring up again, responded Vasily. Please don't argue, said Levin, but do as you're told. Yes, sir, answered Vasily, and he took the horse's head. What a sowing, Konstantin Dmitrovich, he said, hesitating. First rate. Only it's a work to get about. You drag a ton of earth on your shoes. Why is it you have earth that's not sifted? said Levin. Well, we crumbled it, answered Vasily, taking up some seed and rolling the earth in his palms. Vasily was not to blame for their having filled up his cart with unsifted earth but still, it was annoying. Levin had already more than once tried a way he knew for stifling his anger, and turning all that seemed dark right again, and he tried that way now. He watched how Mishka strode along, swinging the huge clods of earth that clung to each foot, and getting off his horse he took the sieve from Vasily and started sewing himself. Where did you stop? Vasily pointed to the mark with his foot 
and Levin went forward as best he could, scattering the seed on the land. Walking was as difficult as on a bog, and by the time Levin had ended the row, he was in a great heat, and he stopped and gave his sieve to Vasily. Well, master, when summer's here, mind you don't scold me for these rows, said Vasily. Eh? said Levin, cheerily, already feeling the effect of his method. Why, you'll see in the summertime, it'll look different. Look you where I sowed last spring, how I did work at it. I do my best, Konstantin Dmitrovich. Do you see, as I would for my own father. I don't like bad work myself, nor would I let another man do it. What's good for the masters, good for us too. To look out yonder now, said Vasily, pointing. It does one's heart good. It's a lovely spring. Why, it's a spring such as the old men don't remember the like of. I was up home. An old man up there has sown wheat too, about an acre of it. He was saying you wouldn't know it from rye. Have you been sowing wheat long? Why, sir, it was taught us the year before last. You gave me two measures. We sold about eight bushels and sowed a rood. Well, mind you crumble up the clods, said Levin, going towards his horse. And keep an eye on Mishka. And if there's a good crop, you shall have half a rouble for every acre. Humbly thankful. We are very well content, sir, as it is. Levin got on his horse and rode towards the field where the last year's clover was, and the one which was ploughed ready for the spring corn. The crop of clover coming up in the stubble was magnificent. It had survived everything and stood up vividly green through the broken stalks of last year's wheat. The horse sank in up to the pastons, and he drew each hoof with a sucking sound out of the half-thawed ground. Over the ploughland, riding was utterly impossible. The horse could only keep a foothold where there was ice, and in the thawing furrows he sank deep into each step. The ploughland was in splendid condition. In a couple of days, it would be fit for harrowing and sowing. Everything was capital. Everything was cheering. Levin rode back across the streams, hoping the water would have gone down. And he did in fact get across, and startled two ducks. There must be snipe too, he thought and just as he reached the turning homeward, he met the forest keeper, who confirmed his theory about the snipe. Levin went home at a trot, so as to have time to eat his dinner and get his gun ready for the evening.